good morning. Cool to see you, whether you're here at Botany or whether you are watching this uh, in a lounge room in Hastings, uh, which is a new uh, satellite church that we're starting up this year. And so hi to all of you guys there. Or if you're watching or listening to this over the internet as well, it's great to have you with us. Um, before we jump into the next part of this series we've started last week in the book of Jonah, just want to um, mention briefly yesterday um, here we had what we call Botany Community Day, which is an event that happens at Botany Town Centre, the big shopping mall in our area. And uh, Mark, um, our community pastor, is one of the main organisers of that, and it's different community services and charities and um, churches and different organi- community organisations all gather and put up stalls right through the, the main street of the town centre. It's just a chance to showcase to the wider community all of these different groups. And so we were there yesterday as well with a stall. We put up a big bouncy castle and let kids go nuts. We had our popcorn machine and I think we made eight or 900 cups of popcorn and gave them away to people all, all day. Um, but the coolest thing was that um, we were able to give away hundreds of flyers for our church and for mainly music uh, and for Willow Park Camp and the next uh, the cartoon camp coming up in the April school holidays, which was just fantastic. And the other thing we did is that um, this year the Bible Society has released just a little um, book for preschool kids called The Cool Story of Jesus. And in our Botany Kids ministry this term, uh, the children are raising money. So if you're a parent and you want to slip them a a dollar or two dollar coin to bring, they're raising money to give to the Bible Society because the Bible Society's goal is to give away 100,000 copies of the cool story of Jesus across New Zealand by Easter. And uh, we actually ordered a box from them last week of 320 of these books and we gave away every single one of them yesterday at Botany Community Day. And so a few of those went to um, individual kids within a family. So some families went home with two or three books, but most families went home with one, which means that right now there are close to 300 households in our community who have this cool story of Jesus in their home. And uh, we don't know how many of them know Jesus or don't know Jesus, but we are really praying that that's just one small step for perhaps some of the people in these families coming to faith in him. So, really cool day, and I want to say thanks to, to Mark for pulling that together and the other staff and volunteers who were there with us for the day. It was pretty cool. And so I just, I just want to pray for that and pray that God would use this, this beautiful little book with lovely rhyming words telling the, the super cool story of Jesus that he'd used that. So can we just pray? God, thank you for this chance we had yesterday uh, to just be in the heart of our community Um, just loving people and giving popcorn away and telling them about our church and the ministries we run and and giving away this this beautiful little book. God, thank you that the story of Jesus really is super cool. And I just pray for each family that took one of those. There were just uh, multiple ethnicities and cultures represented in the community there who were taking this book, and I don't know how many of them know you, But for every single family that doesn't have a relationship with you, would you please use the simple pictures and words of this book to begin a work in their heart by your spirit, we pray. It would just be awesome to know uh, one day that that was a small part in bringing some people to faith in Jesus. So thank you for the opportunity we had yesterday, and we just leave that in your hands, in your name. Amen. Alrighty, I want to do a quick poll this morning. Uh, Whether you're here at at Botany in Auckland or whether you're sitting in the lounge at Hastings, you guys can do this as well. 
if you're listening to this in your car or watching this at your desk or something and you're by yourself, it won't work as well because a poll with only one person isn't quite so good. But we're going to do a poll here and you can do it in Hastings as well. So I want to see a show of hands really high if you ever ran away from home as a kid or as an adult even. Let's see it. Show of hands. High, really high. Actually, that's a little bit more than I thought we would get. <laughs> We're obviously a very sinful church here. No, that's cool though, that's cool. That was, I reckon that was about a quarter to a third of you. So that is, that is a little higher than I was expecting, just to be fair. Um, I never ran away from home, because home was pretty sweet. Um, but I ran away from school. I was about six or seven years old, and um, I was in my classroom uh, at, at Tamatia Primary School in Napier, actually. I, I had my childhood in Hawke's Bay. And I was in my, in my room at Tamatia Primary, and a, 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 an older kid came in the door and, and with a note saying, uh, Bradley Carr had to go to the office to see Mr. Cass. Mr. Cass was the principal. And Mr. Cass was stinking scary. All right, nowadays principals are like these lovely mother or father type figures in, in my childhood, um, which was a while ago now. Um, Mr. Cass was scary. And so I with fear and trepidation, left my classroom and I was heading towards the office at Tamatea Primary School and just as you walk towards the office, just to the right is the pathway leading out of the school. And God just moved my feet <laughs> as I was walking and just directed me out uh, towards the front gate of the school. And I was almost there when a, a, a woman that I didn't know walked in the front gate towards me. And I didn't know her. She obviously wasn't a teacher, so I presume she was a mum, perhaps. And so I ducked down behind the last remaining shrub to hide. The problem was that the, that the shrub was only about this big. And it didn't really do a, a fat lot actually hiding me. I wasn't that big, but I wasn't that small either. But she just kind of smiled at me with a lovely smile and carried on. And so I, I was sweet. And so I was out the gate and uh, down the road, and, and the, the primary school is on Durham Avenue in Tamatea, and our house was about five houses down. And I went home. And mum wasn't home, but the, the, the house was unlocked, as you could do back then. And uh, so I went inside and went down to my room and, and started playing, thinking, mate, this is much better than school. <laughs> and then I heard... Oh, and so I quickly ran into mum and dad's room and hid under the bed. <laughs> and then I heard the door open and the voice of the school secretary going, um, Bradley, are you here? Hello, Ruth? And no answer. And she walked through the house <laughs> looking for the runaway child. And it was like one of those, you know, the scenes in movies where the camera's under the bed and you see the feet. And I saw her feet and she did not see me. And she went again. And then mum came home a little while later and I had a chat to her about it and everything else and then the, the, the phone rang and it was the school and mum took me back. And I ended up in Mr Cass's office. <laughs> and it's a story dripping in irony because what I found out later is Mr Cass hadn't wanted to see me. The secretary needed to see me about something. And so I ran because I thought I had to see Mr Cass and the irony is, I did see Mr. Cass, <laughs> because I had chosen to run. And I don't know what your runaway story was like, but I've heard enough runaway stories from childhood to know that, you know, you ran away to your best friend's house for half an hour, or you made it down to the end of the road and sat in the park until you got hungry, so then you went home for afternoon tea, or whatever it was. And we kind of look back on those stories, don't we, with 
kind of sheepishly and a little bit of embarrassment and, and, and a lot of laughter because they're, they're kind of just funny stories most of the time. There are some, some pretty serious and sad ones, but for most of us, our runaway story is just kind of a little embarrassing. And I wonder if that's how Jonah felt. As he looked back on his story and his life, and we don't know who wrote the book of Jonah, but I'd put my money on Jonah writing it. That maybe he actually put his story to paper. And I wonder as he did so, whether he just kind of smiled knowingly and shook his head in a little bit of embarrassment as he wrote down the silly run that he did from God. We're in this series in, as you're saying, the Old Testament book of Jonah. And if you've got a Bible with you, I'd love you to open it to Jonah chapter 1, whether that's a paper Bible or a phone app or your journal. And uh, we've actually got a journal for this series, and we have printed the text of Jonah, the four chapters, uh, in the early pages of our journal. So is that what you've just gone to grab, Mark? Thank you, mate. So if you don't have a copy of the journal, if you weren't here last week and you would like one, if you want to just slip your hand up, and um, Mark is just going to wander along and start uh, handing out these journals. And the challenge I'm giving everyone is, is to actually jump into the Bible passage for yourself before you come and hear the sermon on a Sunday. So the challenge was last week when we looked at just the opening three verses of chapter one, our challenge was, why don't you read Jonah chapter one this week? Just a few more up here, mate. We'll get to you, Sarah. Okay, just a few more up the front as well here. Awesome. So the challenge I've given you is for you to study the passage for yourself before you come on Sunday to hear the message. And so hopefully a number of you who got journals last week um, actually jumped into Jonah chapter 1 and read it. Uh, this week. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I've had lots of people come back to me and say, hey, I jumped into it and I was talking to this friend and they've read it and it was a great time. We had how uh, Rochelle and I lead the Drive community group, which is our working young adults. And uh, we had Drive this last Wednesday night and we all kind of jumped into the text of Jonah 1 together and had just a, a fantastic time of learning together. And so I hope you've had a chance to jump in and look at the story of the great storm in Jonah 1 before coming this morning and having a look. But either way, if you've got Jonah in front of you, whether that's in the, in the journal itself that you're looking at or you've got a paper Bible there or an app, love you to come and look at it with me. I want to start off by just noting a few things in the opening verse that sets us up. And I'll put this one up on the screen just so we can see it. This is the way, having introduced the story in those first three verses, this is the way the, the rest of this chapter unfolds, or, or at least begins. Then Yahweh, the Lord, which is God's name in the Old Testament, then Yahweh sent a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up and all the sailors were afraid. And I just want to highlight three key words as we begin this morning that are going to help carry this particular chapter of Jonah forward. But before I do that, I just want to underline the way that this introduction begins. One of the things, as I've encouraged you, and as we kind of walked through last week, and if you weren't here last week, it'd be really cool to jump online and watch that message. But one of the things I talk about is looking for key words as you're studying the Bible for yourself. 
And we notice back in, in the opening verses of this chapter, in Jonah chapter 1, the word of Yahweh comes to Jonah, go and preach. And then in verse 3, you read, but Jonah. And that's how Jonah's rebellion begins, verse 3. But Jonah. There's a significant little word there, but. What I want you to notice is that verse 4 begins with another one. Then Yahweh. So God's commanded Jonah to go preach in Nineveh, the the Nazis of the ancient world, and verse 3 goes, but Jonah. But now I want us to see verse 4 goes, then Yahweh. And one of the things that I think Jonah chapter 1 is helping us understand is that but Jonah is never the end of the story. Human beings can look at God and go, but Jonah, but Brad, but Steve. We may but and decide we're going to do our own thing and not obey God and walk away from God and rebel in a certain way way or area of our lives. But that is not the final word in the story because whenever there is a but Jonah, there is a then Yahweh. Because God isn't willing to let us run. In fact, that introduces what I think is the big idea of this opening part of Jonah's story. What we're going to see in Jonah chapter 1 is that our sovereign and powerful God graciously and relentlessly pursues those who are truly his. In other words, God does not allow but Jonah to be the end of your story or my story if we are his children. Because God is going to relentlessly and graciously pursue us. And he doesn't let our running and our sin and our rebellion and our disobedience be the last word in this story. He is going to pursue And that's exactly what we see in this rest of of Jonah chapter 1. Jonah has run. He's rebelled. He's jumped on a ship and he's sailing as far away as he can across the Mediterranean Sea to Spain to get away from God. And God is not letting him go. God is a God who graciously and relentlessly pursues. And that's what we're going to see. Now, Back to this opening verse, I want to show you three key words. Some of these you may have found if you were studying this for yourself. Um, This first one might have been harder for you if you were using the NIV, because I think the NIV is, personally, I think it's the best English translation we have. I think it balances really well uh, translating and rendering into readability. But this particular verb, I wish they'd translated more literally. It says, Yahweh sent a great wind. If you look at most of the other English translations, they use a word like hurled or threw. And that's, that's a much more literal idea. The idea is that God threw a storm. If you imagine God winding up like a baseball pitcher, kind of, you know, that's the idea. God, who is this great and powerful and sovereign God, literally throws the storm onto the Mediterranean Sea in pursuit of this wayward prophet. And this is a very uh, key word, hurled or threw, because in the next verse, the sailors are going to hurl the cargo overboard. And then at the end of the chapter, they're then going to hurl Jonah overboard as well. So it's one of the key words that the narrator uses as this particular chapter unfolds. Another key word is one that we saw last week. 
describing um, in verse 2 the great city of Nineveh. This word great will be used 14 times through the book of Jonah, six times about Nineveh. But here, it's used to describe the great wind and the great storm. It's exactly the same word used twice. Later at the end of this chapter, which should really be the beginning of chapter 2, it'll be a great fish. In chapter 4, it'll be a great anger. And this idea of great is is another key word that carries this chapter and, and the rest of the story forward. In Jonah chapter 1, though, the other key word that is probably the most important here is this one, afraid. This whole chapter is carried forward through the idea of fear. And it begins with God hurling this great storm and great wind onto the sea to pursue his runaway prophet, and the sailors are full of fear. And through the chapter, their fear is going to change and evolve, and the object of their fear is going to change until the end of the story, and here's the way I kind of break the story down. The story concludes that they are even more afraid than they were at the beginning. But by the end of the chapter, they're not afraid of the storm anymore. Now they're afraid of the God of the storm. And... and As you read through chapter 1, and uh, our Drive community group was picking this up and talking this through on Wednesday night, the idea of fear is going to run all the way through the story. The way this chapter works is that this massive storm has hit, and then the sailors are trying to figure out what to do. And as it unfolds through, and I've kind of gone with four different scenes here, the way the story's going to unfold, the storm is intensifying all the time, and they're trying to find a way out and to figure out what it's doing. But as they're trying to work out what they should do and who's at fault and what they need to do to calm the storm, the pressure is continuing to ramp because the storm is intensifying. And so the plot is thickening all the time until you get to the end and the storm will finally stop and they will be filled with a far greater fear than they ever had at the beginning of the story. That's the way the story is going to unfold for us today. So, there's a lot of back and forth action and so on. What I want to show you today, though, and the way I want to just walk through the story quickly with you this morning, is I want you to see the way that this particular chapter of Jonah uses one key literary feature, and that feature is irony. Irony is when it happens, the action happens in a story in a completely opposite way as what you thought it was going to happen. So irony is used to signify the opposite, and it's either for humorous reasons or emphatic reasons, according to the Oxford Dictionary. And this chapter is dripping with irony. And so I want to walk through Jonah chapter 1 with you this morning, and I just simply want to pick up all the notes of irony that happen, all these ironic things that happen through the story that are the complete opposite of what you expect. So the storm has hit in verse 4. Let's look at the first kind of scene here, how the the sailors respond in verses 5 and 6, if you've got it in front of you there. Jonah 1 verse 5, the storm has hit, uh, the ship threatens to break up, and then verse 5 says, all the sailors were afraid. And each one cried out to his own God, and they threw the, or hurled, there's the same word, the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah, there's that same phrase again, but Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. And the captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up, call upon your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not all perish. 
There's a number of ironies in this story. Irony number one in this story is that the experienced sailors are terrified of the storm and Jonah isn't. In fact, Jonah is so chilled, he's having a good nap downstairs. It's just not what you expect in the story. We're talking about a ship manned with experienced mariners. They've been on the Mediterranean Sea for years, probably, some of them decades. They've been through storms. They know how to handle this. But this is such a great storm, they are terrified. It reminds me when I was in intermediate school. We were still living in Napier at that point before moving to Wellington. And we were heading down to the South Island to see friends in Nelson. And so we drove down to Wellington to take the Picton Ferry. And um, it was a, a night crossing, and it was kind of a pretty stormy night. And uh, I'm not the best traveller on a boat, some of you may know. Um, speaking of hurled in here, that's what I often do on a boat. <laughs> and so anyway, we go onto the Picton Ferry, and we drive on as a family, and we go upstairs, and it's, uh, it's sitting at the wharf rocking. And you kind of know you're in a little bit of trouble when it's at the wharf and it's rocking. And anyway, they get everyone loaded on and tie all the cars down and they, and they head out through the Wellington Harbour. And we haven't been five minutes on the water, away from the wharf, and the captain comes on. This is a night crossing. And he says, ladies and gentlemen, welcome aboard. It's great to have you here. Um, this is going to be a rough crossing. Uh, you know, if the captain's announcing that, you know you're in trouble. And he said, uh, because it's a rough crossing and because it is night, we're letting no passengers out onto the deck. Everyone needs to stay indoors, please. Hunker down. Yeah, this is going to be rough. He said it twice. And, and, and already, we're still in Welling, inside Wellington Harbour, and it's going like this. And then, I, no lie, we get out of the Wellington heads, and I think it went up and down twice before I hurled. That, that's all it took. It was so rough. It was unbelievable. Um, so I threw up into a bag, luckily, and then mum and dad took off for the toilets. Apparently, I then fell asleep, but mum and dad apparently spent the whole journey sitting in the men's and women's toilets, respectively, feeling like they wanted to be sick and not being able to. So I really won, actually, because I felt better and fell asleep. Meanwhile, my brother and sister are sitting next to me while I'm sleeping. They're playing board games and eating chocolate. How do genes work that they don't have seasickness and I get all the seasickness genes? It's just ridiculous. It was a horrible, horrible journey. It was so rough that the, the, the captain was coming on and warning people not to go out of doors, hunker down, stay seated, it's going to be rough. That was this kind of storm, this kind of crossing for these sailors. They were terrified, but Jonah was not. Jonah was asleep. Kind of reminds you of the stories in the Gospels, doesn't it? Where there's a storm on the Sea of Galilee and the fishermen, disciples, are scared for their lives. And what's Jesus doing? Jesus is asleep too. A lot of similarities between Jesus and Jonah, but there's a massive difference. Jesus is asleep because he's God and he knows he's not going to die and he has complete confidence in the Father and because he is in the Father's perfect will, he can sleep peacefully like a baby. Jonah, on the other hand, is on the run from God. And yet he's asleep. And I think, and you can't base this on the text, so this is now me stepping out of the, from the text and making my own judgment call, I think Jonah doesn't care. I think the reason that Jonah is fast asleep is because he honestly doesn't care if, if he dies. He's on the run. 
He does not want to go to Nineveh, and honestly, he would rather die than have to fulfill the call that God has put on his life. I think we'll see that played out later on. But this is a massive irony. These experienced sailors are terrified for their lives. Jonah, who most Israelites had never gone on the sea, they were dead scared of it, Jonah is fast asleep peacefully like a baby. Second irony, though, is this in the story. Did you notice this? These pagan sailors are desperately praying to their gods, whoever they are, that they would be saved. And the one guy who knows the true God, who's hurled the storm, not only isn't praying, but he refuses to pray. The captain comes down to the hold and wakes Jonah up and almost begs him, pleads with him, cry out to your God. Maybe he's the one that can help us. And you know what? He is the one that can help them. But Jonah doesn't pray. In fact, Jonah will not pray to Yahweh until he is in the belly of a fish. That's the first time we'll see Jonah pray in the story. So the irony is these sailors, none of whom know the one true God, worship all kind of ridiculous idols. They are praying desperately, having a mass prayer meeting up on the deck. And the one guy who actually knows the true God and should be praying doesn't pray. It's a massive lack of prayerlessness here. And so then the story intensifies. Because verse 7, the praying doesn't work. And the hurling the cargo hasn't worked. So verse 7 we read, the sailors come up with a new plan. So the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. Casting lots was using some little stones or rocks. If you imagine knuckle bones from years ago. And they get a number of rocks and they mark one of them. And then they put them in a cup. And they'd, they'd, shake, they'd shake it up so they couldn't see it. And there might be you know, six or eight of them and that's the number of rocks that have. And say, so, okay, okay, who's first? Right, Julian. No, it's not Julian. Right, Nathan. No, it's not Nathan. Right, Bryn. No, it's not Bryn. Okay, uh, who, what's your name? Jonah. Okay, Jonah. And when you know, surprise, surprise, they cast lots, verse 7 says. And the lot fell on Jonah. It's a beautiful little verse in Proverbs 16:33. The lot is cast into the lap but its decision is from the Lord. What you see in Jonah 1 is the sovereign and powerful God who is so enormously powerful. He can hurl a huge storm onto the Mediterranean Sea that freaks out experienced sailors, and yet he is so powerful, he can also take some tiny little rocks and make sure the right rock falls out at just the right time to earmark his wayward prophet. God's in control of this whole situation. And he is not going to let his prophet get away with running. So the lot falls to Jonah, verse 8. So they asked him, tell us, who's responsible for making this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? What are your people are you? They want to know who the heck he is and what he is doing. And he answers in verse 9. I am a Hebrew. An Israelite. And I worship Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them. 
their fear has become a great fear, literally in the Hebrew text. And they asked, what have you done? And they knew he was running away from Yahweh because he had just told them so. The lot falls to Jonah. They quiz Jonah, who are you? What the heck are you doing? Why has this happened? And Jonah says to them, I'm an Israelite. And I literally fear, same word, Yahweh, the God of the heavens. And they are now even more fearful. What on earth have you done? There's a couple, of, a couple more deep ironies in this part of the story. Irony number three is that Jonah has run from Yahweh because he doesn't want to preach to pagans. And guess what he does in this story? He preaches to pagans. So the very thing he's actually trying to get away from, he actually falls into anyway. Just like me trying to escape from Mr. Cass when I actually wasn't meant to go see Mr. Cass and then ironically I end up seeing Mr. Cass. Jonah has run from God because he doesn't want to preach to pagans about Yahweh and what happens, he ends up preaching to pagans about Yahweh. But that's not the saddest irony of this part of the story. The saddest part of this story is this, that Jonah claims to be a worshipper of Yahweh, literally one who fears Yahweh. But the irony is, he says, I fear Yahweh, I worship Yahweh. And yet he's on a boat, running to the other side of the world. He doesn't fear Yahweh at all. His theology is fine. His understanding of who God is is bang on. And he can claim to be a worshipper and a follower of God all he likes, but his life is not measuring up at that moment to what he says he believes. It's another uh, beautiful uh, proverb that I think is key to this. Proverbs 14. Whoever fears Yahweh, and when the Bible talks about fearing Yahweh, it means to have a reverent awe of who God is that affects the way we live our lives in terms of wisdom and obedience. And Proverbs 14 says, whoever fears Yahweh walks uprightly. In other words, if you say you fear God, if you say you're a worshipper of God, you're a follower of God, then your life will measure up to that claim. But it says, but those who despise God are devious in their ways. The tragedy of the Jonah story is that Jonah in Jonah 1 is not walking uprightly. He is in fact being devious. So while he claims that he loves Yahweh and worships Yahweh and fears Yahweh, the reality actually is that that is far from the truth. His theology may be great, his beliefs may be right, but while he claims to fear God, the truth of the matter is he's on the run and he's not following Yahweh at all. So they are, are fearful but then things ramp again. So if you've still got the text in front of you, either in the journal or phone or Bible, have a look how it ramps again, verse 11. They're terrified. They're saying, what have you done? Meanwhile, verse 11, the sea was getting rougher and rougher. It was already great enough that the, these experienced sailors were terrified, and now it's getting worse. 
So the waves are getting higher, the wind is getting stronger, the hurling is getting further. Anyway, the sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Verse 13. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land. But they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. A couple more ironies in this part of the story. Irony number five is that these sailors who are pagans, they don't know God, they show a greater great concern for Jonah's life. They say to Jonah, what should we do? Jonah says, chuck me overboard. And they don't. Instead, they man the oars and make another attempt to get back to land. They don't want Jonah to die. They've got great concern for Jonah's life. They show themselves. They don't know God, but they actually show themselves in the story to be men of of quite tremendous character. They want to do the right thing. They want to look after this guy. They don't want to kill him. And so they show a lovely concern for the life of this guy who's a passenger on their boat. And the irony is, he's showing very little concern for them. The only reason they're in this spot to begin with is because Jonah's on the run for his life. They're the innocent bystanders who've been caught up in the consequences of Jonah's sin and rebellion. And here's the, the great irony within that. If Jonah really cared for their lives, he doesn't need to be thrown into the ocean. All he needs to do is repent. My understanding is that if Jonah had stood on the deck of the boat and said, Yahweh, I was wrong. Forgive me. I know I can't outrun you. If you would calm the storm and let us get back to Joppa, I'll go to Nineveh. And I think the storm would have stopped and they would have made it back to Joppa and everything would have been fine. But Jonah doesn't want to repent. He confesses to the sailors that this is his fault, but he never confesses that to God. He's still in rebellion, and in fact, he has a death wish. I'd actually rather you threw me overboard so that I died rather than having to confess and repent. And while the sailors show this great concern for Jonah, Jonah seems to show very little concern for them. Then what happens in verses 14 and 15 is you see a mirror to the very beginning of the story in verses 5 and 6. Both response number 1 and response number 4, the opening and closing scenes here, show the sailors praying and then throwing. So back in verse 4 and 5, they they prayed to their gods and then they hurled all of the cargo overboard. Well, now you come down to verse 14 and 15 and here's what we read. Then they cried out to Yahweh. So now these pagan sailors are praying to the one true God. And in fact, they use his name, which in Hebrew literature 
is very suggestive that they are actually moving towards him. Please, Yahweh, they pray, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Yahweh, have done as you pleased. It's actually a very profoundly theological prayer. They recognize that God is the sovereign and all-powerful God. And they can't change him. They can't move him. They can't get past him. Yahweh's in control of this. And so they pray, just as they did at the beginning. They prayed to their gods and then threw out the cargo. Now they come and they pray to Yahweh himself and ask for forgiveness. And then verse 15, then they took Jonah and threw him overboard and the raging sea grew calm. And the story concludes with verse 16. Verse 17 in our English Bibles should be in the next chapter, and in fact is in some of the ancient Hebrew manuscripts. So the story ends in verse 16. At this, at the calming of the sea, the men greatly feared Yahweh, and they offered a sacrifice to Yahweh, and they made vows to him. A couple more ironies to finish this story. Irony number six, the sailors, in verse 14, are very quick to confess their wrongdoing to Yahweh. They're about to throw a man overboard. They're about to kill this guy. And so they come and they confess that to Yahweh, but they feel boxed in and they explain to God, we don't know what else to do, so we're going to do this, but would you please forgive us for doing this? So they're confessing their sin to Yahweh, even though they've got no other options, But ironically, Jonah still isn't confessing his sin to Yahweh, which is actually a far greater sin, really. And then irony number seven is that while this Israelite prophet claims to fear Yahweh, that's what he says back in verse 9, you get to the end of the story in verse 16, and it's actually the pagan sailors who end up genuinely fearing him. In fact, verse 16 is quite beautiful. This is how it reads literally in the Hebrew text. At this, the men feared a great fear of Yahweh, and they sacrificed sacrifices, and they vowed vows. There's three double kind of verbs. And I think what it's trying to get across here is that these pagan sailors come to faith in Yahweh. They come to believe that he is the true God. And I think they are genuinely saved in the story. Not through Jonah as much as in spite of Jonah. So the end of the story, Jonah's still on the run. He's still not confessing. He doesn't fear God even though he claims to. But these guys who don't know God and didn't fear God end at the story, now they fear God. They've come to genuine saving faith. And I think it's genuine saving faith for three key reasons. Uh, Number one, the way that the word fear is used in this story. It begins, remember, a great fear of the storm. And then when Jonah says, I fear Yahweh and this is who he is, A great fear comes on them. They're afraid of Yahweh. But then as the story is progressing, I think what's happening is they are starting to come to understand who this God is and their terror is morphing and changing into a reverent awe of this all-powerful God. 
That's the way I think the, the word fear is using. Secondly, I think they come to faith because of the way verse 16 is written. Not only do they greatly fear Yahweh, but they sacrifice sacrifices and vow vows, which is a very Israelite way of worship. For example, Psalm 116 will say, I will sacrifice a thank offering to you and call on the name of Yahweh. I will fulfill my vows to Yahweh in the presence of all his people. When the Old Testament talks about God's people making sacrifices and fulfilling their vows to God, they're talking about pious, godly Israelites with a genuine faith. And I think the writer here, whether it's Jonah or someone else, is genuinely trying to show us these guys have come to faith. We would use in the New Testament language, they've become Christians. They've trusted in Jesus, except Jesus hasn't come yet. They've trusted in Yahweh. And their hearts have so changed through the story, in spite of Jonah, these pagan sailors have come to faith in him. The third reason I think that is because as the book of Jonah unfolds, what we're going to see is that chapter 1 and chapter 3 are going to mirror each other, and chapter 2 and chapter 4 are going to mirror each other. And in chapter 1, I think the sailors come to faith. And in chapter 3, so do the Ninevites. And I think this, this mirroring in the way the book unfolds is another indication of what happens here. They come to faith in Yahweh. But there's this brilliant irony in the story that the Israelite prophet claims to fear Yahweh. But it's actually the sailors who do. And if I'm right, there's a final irony. The sailors end up coming to faith in Yahweh through Jonah, but Jonah's not there to see it. Jonah ends up getting used by God in spite of himself, but he actually doesn't see them make sacrifices or make vows because he's now floating away in the water or descending into the water, as we will see next week. The way this story unfolds, Jonah chapter 1, I think it's so beautifully written. And you would have reason to think as you read this that the main characters of Jonah... Chapter 1 are Jonah and the sailors. There's this interaction going back and forwards. There's action and there's dialogue and there's questions between Jonah and the sailors all the way through the chapter. But what I want to suggest is that actually the main character of this story is Yahweh. Because while the dialogue is happening between Jonah and the sailors and, and at one point the captain of those sailors and it's going back and forth between them, behind this and controlling the entire scene is Yahweh, this great and powerful God. And I think as we come to the end of this and step back from the story, that is what we're meant to see, that God is this all-powerful and sovereign God. He is in control of everything. He hurls a great storm, and he controls the little stone that falls out of the cup. And this great and powerful God is graciously and relentlessly pursuing Jonah. Jonah can do as many but Jonas as he likes. Yahweh will always follow it with a then Yahweh. Because he's on, in pursuit of this guy. And he is not willing to let Jonah get away. He's not willing to let Jonah run. He's not willing to let Jonah run away from him. And I think God is still like that. He is still the sovereign and all-powerful God, and I think he still graciously and relentlessly pursues those who
who are truly his. It's a beautiful little passage in the New Testament book of Hebrews. Hebrews 12 talks about God's discipline in our lives. It says, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you're not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you're not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. See, I think this story shows that God relentlessly and graciously pursues those who are truly his. But what Hebrews reminds us, if you know what, you run from God, and God doesn't pursue you, you don't feel the, uh, the work of the Holy Spirit bringing conviction and stuff, if God just lets you go, then you need to be really scared. I've actually sat across from people who have been having an affair and walked out on their marriage. I've sat across from people who have been in rebellion in different ways from God. And I've actually shared that verse with them and said, I will be praying for you that you will feel the hand of discipline of God on your life as he pursues you. And if you don't feel that, you need to be incredibly scared. Because I think God does graciously and relentlessly pursue those who are truly his goes on in Hebrews, we all had had human fathers who disciplined us. They disciplined us for a little while, as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. We had a fascinating discussion on Wednesday night at Drive about Jonah chapter 1, and the question was, does God come across as harsh here? You know, like he just seems to be like going after Jonah big time. And he does. He's this all-powerful and sovereign God. But I think we meant to see a God of grace in that. This God who relentlessly pursues because he loves his prophet. He loves Jonah too much. Not only to let Jonah run, but to not let Jonah stay in that kind of space. To not let Jonah remain with a, a headspace around uh, towards the Ninevites where he hates them and towards the sense that he can just do whatever he likes and doesn't have to obey God. Jonah wants, uh, sorry, God wants to see Jonah grow and change and mature and we would say in the New, in New Testament language, become more and more like Jesus. And God is not being harsh here so much as he is being gracious and loving as a father who disciplines his children. He is not going to let Jonah run because he loves Jonah too much. And if you're a follower of Jesus today, if you worship Yahweh, and if you're disobedient to God, if you run from God, if you choose not to obey when where he has clearly said in his word that we're to share our faith and pray continually and extend forgiveness and we don't do that, we can expect God's hand of discipline in our lives in various ways. Not because God is harsh, but because God is wanting to bring us back and to grow us and God is more concerned with our holiness than he is with our happiness. But that's the picture of God we get in this beautiful story. The sovereign and all-powerful God who graciously and relentlessly pursues those who are truly his. We are finishing this Jonah series each week by reflecting on the response that Jewish people make in the synagogues every year 
when they read the book of Jonah at Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. The book of Jonah is read in its entirety, and then at the end of that, the congregation responds with these three words, I am Jonah. And I'm ending each of the messages in this little Jonah series with some reflections about what we need to learn and how we need to say, I am Jonah, in response to this passage. And I want to very quickly leave us with four reflections today. I am Jonah when I assume I can run from God. Honestly, I'm Jonah when I think that I can just simply disobey God and there will be no consequences. I am Jonah when I am silly enough to presume that God doesn't mind too much if I just sin a bit. Because he does. He's a holy God. And he does. And God is not going to let me run if I'm truly his. He will relentlessly pursue. Secondly, I am Jonah when I forget that my sin impacts others' lives. The sailors were innocent bystanders in terms of what Jonah was doing with Yahweh. But they get caught up and are close to losing their lives because of Jonah's sin. We get fooled into thinking that if we give in to temptation and we just sin a little bit in our lives, then it's really just between us and God. It is never, ever about just me and God. Our sin will always bubble over out of our lives and affect the people around us, especially those we love. I, I get really tired, and I've had a few times where I've sat with people who have decided to walk out on their marriage, and they look at me and tell me it won't affect their kids. It always affects their kids. And, I, and I talk to, I've talked to people as a pastor who harbour bitterness in their hearts and say, I'm not going to forgive that person, but that's okay. It won't affect anyone else. It's my issue. And it's like, no, no. It bubbles out in anger with copious other people, especially those who are close to you. I'm not going to deal with an addiction or a problem or a sin habit in my life. It's just between me and God. No, it's not just between you and God. Our sin and rebellion against God will always impact the lives of people around us, particularly those who are closest to us. And I am Jonah when I fool myself into thinking that it won't affect anyone else, because it always will. Thirdly, I am Jonah whenever my life doesn't measure up to what I say I believe. Verse 9 in this story haunts me. That Jonah can stand on the deck of a ship and say, I worship Yahweh. I fear the God of Israel. And he's on the run. And I wonder how often I can say the right things and say, this is what I believe. And yet my life doesn't measure up to what I say I believe. And there's this disconnect. I'm Jonah when my life doesn't measure up to what I say I believe. And finally, I am Jonah when God saves others in spite of me rather than through me. God doesn't need any of us to bring people to salvation. 
but God invites us into that process. God wants to use us as part of our journey and our maturity to win others to him. He wants to use us as his instruments. But if we don't come to the party, if we don't raise our evangelistic temperature, if we don't open our mouths at times and, and open our schedules and reach out and build friendships and share the love of Jesus with people, God will still go ahead and save them. It just won't be through us. But how tragic is it that God may choose to save people in spite of us rather than through us? I am Jonah. I want to finish this the same way that I did last week. And that is to give you a moment with God. I just want to invite you to take those lists of reflections and just maybe allow the Spirit of God to just bring to your heart which of those may be the most appropriate for you to reflect on. And then I just want to invite you to come with an open heart and open hands. Just, just talk to God about that. If you need to confess, then go ahead and do that. And then I'm going to pray and our service is going to be done. Father, thank you for this beautifully crafted story. Thank you for the way that Jonah or whoever it is that wrote it just used irony so brilliantly to bring these profound messages through. God, we come to you today and we confess wherever we are, I am Jonah. I am Jonah because my life mirrors Jonah's in so many ways. And God, we just come in the quietness of this moment and we confess once again our weakness to you. But we also want to come, God, and say thank you. Thank you that you are the God of grace who forgives and extends forgiveness, not because we deserve it, but because of Jesus paying the full sacrifice for our sins. And God, we want to say too, thank you that you are a sovereign and all-powerful God, fully in control of everything that goes on in our lives. And thank you also that you are this gracious and relentless God. You don't give up on us. You don't let us go. You're the God who pursues us down. God, many of us in here today may well be right where Jonah is in this story. Lord, we're actually not walking closely with you. We may be on the run. We may be dabbling with some disobedience, maybe in, in just one or two areas of our lives, but we're not really worshipping and fearing you the way we claim. And God, I want to pray for each person in that place this morning. Lord, help them to realise that you are graciously pursuing them. May right now, in this moment, 
Holy Spirit, would you give them the grace and the courage to turn back in repentance and confession and come back to a gracious God right now. Father, there may also be people this morning here at Botany or in Hastings or listening to this that are like the sailors, have never trusted in God before, maybe have been checking out the faith, and yet you are pursuing those sailors too. And I pray that if there's anyone listening to this that hasn't actually given their lives to Jesus and acknowledged their sinfulness and chosen to put their faith in Jesus as the one who died for our sins and rose again, that they would do that in this moment too. God, thank you. Thank you that you are a relentless God. Thank you that you're a gracious God. Thank you that you're a sovereign God. We trust you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Guys, that's our service. Thank you for being with us. If you would uh, like some prayer, we'll have some elders and pastors available at the front and uh, we'd love to have the opportunity to pray for you. Otherwise, please hang around, enjoy tea and coffee and uh, see the people coming to the next service and we'll see you next week. Thanks a lot.